So hey, if you have your Bibles as you're finishing passing the baskets, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We are continuing on the series that we've been in for the last couple of months called Transcend. We've been walking through the book of uh, Philippians together. And uh, so today is a shift in in kind of the way of what Paul is writing and what we've been looking at. Over the last number of weeks particularly, Paul's talked a lot about us, like unity and friendship and connection and relationships. And now he shifts when he gets to chapter 3, and this gets now very personal for Paul. And before we jump into what we're going to specifically look at today, I just wanted to be remind, uh, mindful. Remember, every time we come to the Bible, one of the things that we ha- it requires us to do is it requires us to ask the question, what was the original context for this when it was written? And where was it coming from? What was kind of the setting? Because sometimes if you don't have context, you don't understand what's going on. What we're going to look at today is something very personal for Paul because he's talking about his own journey with Jesus and how he came to understand what is most valuable and most important in his life. But what we're going to read, the first 11 verses of chapter 3, you have to remember where the stage of life that Paul was writing this in, okay? So Paul had, if you real quick, short, abbreviated kind of summary of Paul's life. Paul was as religious as you could get. He was at the pinnacle of what it meant to be a religious person in, in his day. But when what to the point where when Jesus came along, he rejected everything about Jesus because to him, Judaism was the faith of God and therefore Jesus wasn't God because it didn't match up with what he saw. And so much so that Paul actually did everything in his power to try to stop the advance of what Jesus was trying to do through the church. This is part of the book of Acts, the early part of the book of Acts to the point where he was actually throwing Christians in prison and actually killing Christians. That's how, like, passionate he was believing that what Christianity was about was wrong and what he knew understood was right. And then you get to Acts chapter 9, and then, then Jesus literally appears to Paul and transforms his entire life. So he literally reverses 180 degrees, and now he's the biggest advocate for the church and the work of God in the world through Jesus, and that becomes his life. And then if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you see one of the most incredible spiritual and ministry and kingdom resumes that you will ever see in the history of the world. God uses Paul to reach the Gentiles, to preach the gospel, to stand before rulers, to heal people, to literally be stoned and almost killed and then come back from that. I mean, to do all kinds of crazy things. So this is all of Paul's life. And so when Paul writes the book of Philippians, he's towards the end of his life physically. And he's had all these things go on in his life. But what he writes in this passage is something that I don't know if I could write about my own life. I don't know if I could say what Paul's about to say about what he has as a spiritual resume, what he has as a background. And the reason I say this is because one of the things that Paul has and one of the things that Paul got, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why God used Paul so profoundly, is Paul never settled for what God did yesterday. Paul never settled for the things that he had seen God do or the things that he had accomplished religiously in his past. He always was pressing forward because he knew there was always a deeper level of actually knowing Jesus that even though he was further advanced than any of us will ever be in this life, he still knew there was more. So we had to go back and revisit what does it mean to actually truly know Jesus. So I think that as we read today, you'll you'll see this this is something that all of us can find in ourselves Because I know if you're anything like me, if you've known Jesus for a week or you've known him your whole life, this is what happens is that you want to follow Jesus, which I think John, I think was something the Lord wanted us to hear this morning. 
We make it about being believers. Jesus makes it about being followers. There's a huge difference between a believer and a follower. A believer wants to know information. A follower has to know individually and personally so they can actually track where Jesus is leading them. But for us to understand this, there's something that happens in our life where, in fact, I think in, in Galatians, Paul actually says this to the Galatian church. He said, you guys are running a great race, but who cut you off? Who got in your way? Who distracted you? And that's our life. Put it this way. You ever driven on the freeway and you're, you're following somebody? You, two cars are going to the same place, but the person who's in the lead knows where they're going, and you're not quite sure, and you're the follower. So when you're on the freeway and you're driving along, if maybe if you're like me, you're trying to stay as close to that person as possible, and then somebody cuts in between the two of you. Now, you know it can't be true, but in your mind you're thinking, don't they know that I'm following the person in front of me? Anybody relate to that? And you start to get offended. Like, how dare they cut in front of me? Can't they see that somehow we're following each other? But then the frustrating part of that is that once that person cuts in front of you and they drive slower than you were going before, then somebody cuts in front of them, and then before you know it, you're not just one car back, you're five cars back. You know what I'm talking about? And now your frustration level is like, right? You're questioning your faith. Do you want to be a Christian anymore because you're so angry? And what is that? It's because you're trying to pace with the person in front of you. You're trying to follow them to get where you're supposed to get, but things keep coming in and becoming barriers and limitations to getting to you to where you're supposed to be. And sometimes in life, and we'll see, those things are things that we perceive as being really good that actually become the very thing that limit us from actually knowing Jesus. And that's what, what Paul says today is so profound about what it really means to know Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to kind of work our way through the passage a, a little bit at a time so that we can kind of really dive into what Paul's saying. So uh, look at verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 3, because the first thing that Paul describes of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus, what does it mean? It means that you and I have to be willing to move beyond the outside to the inside of ourselves. So listen to what Paul says. He writes in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. Verse 2. He says, look out for those, the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So let's just pause for a moment. Paul is saying something so you understand. One of the things that you, if you read Paul's writings in the New Testament, you will understand. Paul really didn't care about the people he was offending when he would write. He was very bold in what he was saying. Now, for most of us, what, what he's saying here, we either don't understand it or it doesn't mean a whole lot, but if you were a first-century Jew who was a Pharisee or a religious leader, you would be extremely offended by what he's just saying. So what Paul says is he's describing the outward sign of the Jewish people that, was separate, that separated them from the cultures of the world, which was this thing called circumcision. That was the sign that they were set apart as God's people. And so there was obviously this big thing that you, as, as obviously, if, if you gave birth to a male, you were making sure that a male came into your family, that male was circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Because that's the sign to all people that you're God's people. So you're like, by the way, I don't know why God chose that. You just ask him when you get to heaven why circumcision was the sign, okay? But here's the reality of what Paul's saying. In the Jewish culture, in Jewish law, it was against the law to mutilate your flesh, to cut yourself or to change anything on your body. That was, that was an abomination. That was a violation against God in you. And so if you're to do anything to modify your body, you're actually working against what God was wanting to do. 
So what Paul is saying, he's saying everybody who believes in circumcision is their significance. When you reduce it down to what's going on, all they're dealing with is what's on the outside. It's what's on the surface. It's not what's on inside of them. And when you reduce it down even further, all they really are is mutilators of the flesh. For a first century Jew to hear that in terms of reference to circumcision is highly offensive. Paul's saying the very thing that signified me as somebody with special privileges separate from the world is the very thing that on the outside just seems that it says that I've mutilated my flesh. I didn't do anything significant. There's no difference in me other than what is on the outside of me because something on the inside is more important. Now, let's get beyond circumcision for a moment. Pretty disgusting reality of circumcision, but what Paul's talking about is that you and I can become very proficient at dealing with the outside and never touch the inside. Jesus didn't come to modify our outside. He came to transform our inside. Completely different reality. But some of us become so focused on that, we don't realize that everything that we do to try to make sure everything is okay on the outside is worthless. It's meaningless. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change our destiny. It doesn't change the reality of who we are because we haven't gone beyond the surface. So you can take a look at this slide. There's a, there's a phrase that became popularized, uh, but probably was even stated before this. This guy's name is Rogers Morton. He was the campaign manager for Gerald Ford when Ford was obviously running to get back into the White House in the 70s. And after losing five out of the six primaries that they were in, this is what he said. Rogers Morton said, I am not going to rearrange furniture on the deck of the Titanic. Anybody heard the phrase before? Anybody ever said the phrase before? It's like rearranging chairs on the, on the Titanic. What, what, is that, what is that analogy saying? It's saying it doesn't matter how good the deck of the Titanic looks, it's still going to sink. And uh, you and I need to think about that. Sometimes our deck looks great. Everything is in order. Our whole system of faith, we understand, we, we do devotions, we go to church, we do all the things that we say qualify what it is to be a Christian. But if you narrow them all down, nothing penetrates into the core of who we are because we're just going through the motions. That's why Paul, listen, did you hear what Paul said? He says, watch out for those dogs. And then he says this, those evil doers. What? He's calling religious people. Aren't religious people good? They do religious things. He's saying, no, actually what they say is good is actually evil because they never allow God to penetrate into their heart. So this is what Paul's saying. Now, he, he goes on. This is the, the, first, the first reality. So he goes on, look at verses 5 and 6, because he says, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's not only getting to the inside, getting past the outside, but he says it's moving beyond our religious background. This is one where it starts to hurt, just so I'm giving you a warning, okay? Look at verses 5 and 6. So he said, if anybody has reason to be confident in their flesh, in where their, their resume is, in their history, Paul says, I've got it. Listen to what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, for most of us, we're like, well, that's a nice list. It doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Oh, my. <laughs> you know what Paul's saying there? I'm as Jewish as you can get. I'm as religious as you can get. I, you can't get past how good I am. Everything about my life, both from my birth to my adult life, is that the pinnacle of this religion in Judaism, which he believed was very right, and that he had every understanding of all who God was. He said, nobody can come close to me. Now, you're going to see in a moment, he's going to start to disassemble this whole thing. 
But what is he saying? He's saying a religious heritage is meaningless when it comes to actually knowing Jesus. Did you hear what I said? Now, you, you, most of us think, oh, I'm not religious. It's that other person. No, we're all religious. It happens. We take this beautiful thing of knowing the God of the universe through his presence of his spirit in our lives, and we turn it into a system. We turn it into rules and regulations. Why? So we feel safe. So we feel like we can control it. So we feel like we can get our mind around it. So we feel like that we're the ones in control because really if God was in control, that would really actually be frightening. And we create a religious system. So what happens when you and I get stuck in our religious heritage? I'm speaking from experience. I came to know Jesus when I was six years old. There's not a day in my life my family did not faithfully attend and be involved and be in some kind of ministry in church. This is me. This is what Paul's describing in Judaism is describing me in Christianity. And so I'm thinking, well, if I have pride, but if I have pride, this is what happens over time. When you have pride in your ability to be religious, then what happens is you become more and more technical about how to do something, not realizing you're completely missing the point. Because religion is about doing things the right way, but Jesus is about doing the right thing which means you can do the wrong thing the right way. That's religion. This is frightening. This is like wake-up time, like, whoa, something has to change, no matter what my history is. See, here's the reality, is that you and I could technically follow the rule book and still not be able to execute our faith, still not be able to truly know Jesus, still not really be able to experience what God has for us in Jesus' death and his resurrection. We can be really technical and we can be really specific. So I, I, w I was raised on reruns of the Brady Bunch, so you're going to have to go with me for a minute here, okay? I want you to watch a short little video, okay? And this is Mrs. Brady teaching her boys how to bunt properly, okay? So take a look at this. Now, boys, pay close attention. I'm going to show you the proper stance in executing a bunt. Ready? Okay, now, the right foot is in the back, left foot is in the front. Bat is held high behind right ear. Hips are pushed forward. Put your weight on your right foot, flex your left knee. Place your left elbow toward left field and your right elbow in. Now, put your head back, hold your stomach in, and point your toes out. Okay? Let's see you hit it. Sure. You ready? Yeah. So can you tell she read the textbook, right? She has the, the, de the definition, but she can't hit the ball. That's exactly what religion looks like. It's, it's powerless to do anything of significance because it's only about the rules. And so when you look back over your life, and, uh, and it's not that you have to say, I have a perfect history, but there's something of our own pride that enters into the equation that keeps us from saying there, there must be more. Because you haven't, you and I, remember Paul's writing this from prison after most of his life has already gone by, and he's got this great spiritual uh, hill, uh, heritage behind him, but this is what he says, there's still more. There's more to knowing Jesus than just the life that I've lived, which leads to the third thing. Look at verses 7 through 9. If we're going to truly follow Jesus, that means moving beyond a personal achievement. So man, this is where Paul starts to turn. Look at verses 7 through 9. He says this, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that from God that depends on faith. Again, super strong words that Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, I have the spiritual heritage. I have all these accomplishments. Remember, he's, when he's saying this, he's not talking about just his Jewish heritage. He's talking about all of he, what he's accomplished in the kingdom of God up until this point. And he says, I count it all as what? Personally, as a loss for one thing, for knowing Jesus. Why is knowing Jesus so important? Because knowing Jesus is more valuable than anything you'll ever do for Jesus. Knowing Jesus is more powerful than anything that you can ever demonstrate in being religious or having a, some kind of significance in this world. Knowing Jesus is the most important thing to Paul, and that's what he's highlighting here. He's moving beyond his pride to say, listen, there's something more valuable than all the things I've ever done in my entire life, and it's sh simply knowing Jesus at an intimate level. That's the most important thing. Now here's where it really hits home for us. The majority of our church family has known Jesus for quite a long time. There's a, there's a few in, in our, amongst us that are journeying toward Jesus, some who've known Jesus for a short time, but the biggest majority, the biggest demographic of our church, people who have spiritual heritage, there's a danger in that. And that is that what happens is you, in your mind, you don't say this, but something in your mind plateaus. Like I've reached kind of, this is the way it's supposed to be, this is the way Christianity looks, and so I just kind of do this routine day in and day out because I've, you don't say this, but I've kind of arrived. And there's, there's not much more other than I just hang on, I live a good moral life, and then someday when I die, I go to be with Jesus, and that's the sum total of what our lives are. That's not Paul's life. And he knows Jesus better than we do, I think. What does Paul's life look like? No, none of it, none of it's worth. In fact, he's so strong, we can't literally translate what Paul is saying from Greek into English because I can't say the word in church. He's using the word dog crap, is what he's saying about his personal achievements. And if you look at Paul's life, read the book of Acts, you're like, wow, you called that crap? I'll take that crap any day. Seriously. That's what he's saying. That's how serious he is. It's worthless. Why? Because the only thing that matters is knowing Jesus. Now, why is that important for you and I? Because the moment you think that you've gotten your, you've figured out this thing called faith, that you've figured out a relationship with Jesus, is the moment that you're in the greatest danger of not knowing who Jesus is. Because Jesus calls us not to be believers, but he calls us to be what? Followers. That means he's drawing us forward into something more. A deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of him. And so he's calling us forward. And so that means there is no place for complacency in Christianity. You don't ever arrive until the day you die. And then you go into his presence. And then everything changes. So we keep pressing forward. What's the danger in becoming complacent when you think, I've got this? Here's a good example. Let's do it in this. Here's a Blackberry. Anybody ever had one of these? Look at that really cool keyboard, physical keyboard, no touch on it. It's like real, real keys, real letters. So listen, this is a quote from uh, an online blog called TheVerge.com about electronics. And so uh, this is in reference to the fact that BlackBerry no longer makes smartphones because it failed miserably because it didn't think that smartphones were very important because BlackBerry had done it the best you can do it. 
says this blackberry was more concerned with protecting what it already had instead of what conquering new land did you know that so years a few, few years ago you know that they celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the iphone which has changed our culture so Samsung and, and Apple had these ideas that the wave of the future was a, a, a big screen with touch things on it that you could use your fingers on. And BlackBerry knew that was coming but said, ah, that's not going to fly. Our keyboard's good enough. Why? Because at that point, if you go back 10 years, 10, 12 years ago, you know what dominated the market? BlackBerry. And they got arrogant. And they thought, ah, it's not going to change. Our keyboard is as good as it could be. T today, BlackBerry doesn't make smartphones anymore. They actually had to shift completely. They don't make product anymore because, why? They were so arrogant. They thought they had arrived at the ultimate device that the world would use for the rest of time, only to find that Samsung and Apple were just a couple steps ahead of them. See, some of us live in a faith that is based on 10, 20, 30 years ago. And when we do that, we, we, never, we never advance. And that's why this is, this is good. Did you notice we revisited a decade to 15 to 20 years old uh, ago of worship this morning? Danny did that on purpose. You know why? He said, I want people to sing without having to think about the words. And most of these songs would be familiar to us who are in the 45 to 65 range in this room. Not all of us, but many of us. That's good, but we don't live there. Because some of you are like, oh, this is great. We could do this every Sunday. No! Because God, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing new worship music for today that reflects the church and what God is up to today. Do we go back and sing great hymns? Absolutely. But do we live in that? No. Because God is moving forward. And that means in our faith that we're moving forward. So Paul says, listen, you have to move beyond your personal achievements of the past. And then look at verse 10, because now it's, now it's going to get really deep. And this is going to be completely counter to what you and I would think is true about what it means to know Jesus. But look at verse 10, because Paul says you and I have to move beyond knowledge to experience. He says this in verse 10. He says, I want to know, or that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What is Paul saying in verse 10? You know what he's giving us? He's giving a blueprint of how you know Jesus. Like, wait, 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 wait. If you grew up, like, in the 60s, 70s, where's the four spiritual laws? Wait, wh wh where's the, where's the, the certain things I have to say in order? Where's the prayer that I have to pray? And then I'm saying, no, 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 no. What is Paul saying? Here's the blueprint. You want to know Jesus? You want to actually experience him? This is what it looks like. Why is that important? Because you and I, in our Western mindset, when we, when we think of believing and following Jesus, we think of knowing a topic, understanding Christianity, and defining it. That's not first, cen first century mindset. That's not a Jewish mindset. A Jewish mindset, the word no to a Jew meant experience. I don't know because it's up here. I know because it's in here. So that's what Paul's saying. If I want to know Jesus, I have to experience Jesus. How do you experience Jesus? This is not the roadmap that you and I would lay out for ourselves. What does he say? Three things that comes under this, this knowing. How do I actually know Christ? So the, look what he says, how he breaks it down in verse 10. The first thing is, I want to know what? No, the power of his resurrection. Experiencing his power. The way you know Jesus is when you experience his power in your life. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you understand that Jesus has deposited in you his spirit, and with his spirit comes a power that you and I don't have. That is the reality of what it means to actually know Jesus. And the only way you know Jesus is that God's spirit is working inside of you to reveal who he is and to experience his power. What is his power? 
the power of Jesus is the power that God used to raise him from the dead. And that same power lives in us. That's crazy power. But some of us will go a lifetime and never tap into it. Because if you're honest, you don't need God's power to manage your faith. You've got it down. You don't live beyond the limits of your ability. You live within the safe confines of the religion that you have defined for yourself and never tap into God's power. Why? Because it's too frightening. It's too scary. I might be in over my head, which, by the way, is exactly where God wants us. Read the book of Acts. Paul lived in the deep end all the time. He's constantly drowning apart from God's power in his life. That's what you want to have, have to experience. How do we experience God's power? You're going to experience God's power when you get out, outside of your own ability. When you push yourself into situations where you know, unless God shows up, I am dead. And sometimes you have to initiate those. Sometimes you have to push yourself because by default, we won't go there. That's why when we talk about things like Skid Row or even Laundry Love or, God forbid, Haiti, we still have people who say, I just can't do that. And they'll give you 10 reasons why, but the bottom reason is, bottom is I, I just can't handle that. I can't handle a different culture with strange food, and it's 95 degrees, and there's bugs, and you have to take malaria medication, and you have to get shots. And you, Yeah, you do. For the sake of what? The sake of the gospel. The sake of Jesus. More importantly, and this is what we're starting to discover about Haiti, not only in our church, but other organizations that are going to with Connect2, for the sake of you actually knowing Jesus. Did you know that there are non-Christians that are going on teams with Connect2 to Haiti and people who don't know Jesus are finding Jesus in Haiti because they're watching the gospel unfold before them as they serve people who are broken and living in poverty? Go figure. How does that work? Why? Because they're experiencing Jesus for the first time. I want you just to think about that for a moment. When was the last time you were completely in over your head? Not because of your own sin. We're all in over our head on sin. But when were you in over your head and you needed God's power to break through and show up? Otherwise, you were dead. It wasn't going to work. I can give you a bunch of those in my life, but that's one of the reasons you hear me talk so much about getting out of the context of safety and comfort and ease and pushing and going to different countries and going to places where you don't feel comfortable. Why? Because it's in those places that God will show up. When you get to the end of yourself, guess what? You will find God's power. Paul lived in that power all the time. That's why Paul knew Jesus. So I've, I've, I think I've referenced some of this story before, but my first experience with the Dream Center wasn't when we, when, not when we came back down to Los Angeles, it's actually in the LA area. When we were up in Oregon, my first experience was our, our church sent a team, they have a week-long thing that you can do to be a part of all the ministries of the Dream Center in LA. Now you have to understand, I came down with a sense of pride with that team. There's about 12 of us on the team, and I grew up in San Fernando Valley. I grew up in Van Nuys, so virtually I grew up in L.A. So we're going back to my, like, my home court advantage area, right? I, this is where I grew up, and so I'm thinking to the team, like, you guys are all Oregonians. If, you know, you don't understand. I know L.A., right? So we get down here, and this is just after the Dream Center had purchased the, the Queen of Angels Hospital, and they hadn't renovated it yet. They were just using it, was, using it as is and kind of making, making do until they started to renovate it. So the rooms that we stayed in that week were bunk beds packed into rooms that had no air conditioning, and it was one of those heat, heat weeks where it was about 95 degrees in L.A., not just out here, it was in the triple digits out here, so it's 95 degrees, and then you have a fitted sheet on an old stinky mattress, and, and then they had fans, at least the air moved, and if you happen to need a blanket, 
They didn't have real blankets. They had packing blankets that you use when you move with a truck. You know those? You ever tried to put one of those up against your skin? It's like sandpaper. So that's the accommodations that you have. You're like, okay, this is going to be unique. So then on top of that, you, when you, and I don't know if they still do this, but when you went to the Dream Center at that point, you ate with everybody, meaning when they served the homeless community, you ate with them. So you're eating the food that they eat, and because they were making do with everything that they had, they, they would always use whatever food they had that was marginally fresh, which is really a very loose term. That means that it was way past date, whatever they were using. So the food didn't taste right, and it really actually made you sick. I knew that things weren't going well. The first meal we sat down for lunch, we had what was called Sloppy Joe's, looked nothing like Sloppy Joe's, and when I sat down, three, three feet over from my foot was a dead rat on the floor. And I'm thinking, he probably just had Sloppy Joe's too. That's the way I'm going <laughs> to end up. And then they, then they thrust you into all their ministries. I thought I knew L.A. I didn't know L.A. They put us in some of the projects with some pretty rough folks. And they just, like, literally, Dream Center, I love it. They, they really don't train you much. They just say, go. <laughs> Hope you survive and come back. Really, that's what we get. And so you're, you're hanging out with people who speak different languages, who look at you weird, and a lot of it is, like, they look at you and you, white boy, what are you doing down here? And then, you, then they take you down to Skid Row. Now you're in the deep end. If you haven't gone down to Skid Row, you need to do that. Because I almost, probably 75% of the people who go to Skid Row for the first time, this is what they say. I never knew that would happen in our country. And this is the reality that people live in every day. So you're going through this whole week. They're keeping you up. You're getting you up early. They're keeping you up late. You're doing ministry at night. You're doing ministry all the time. You're getting really bad food. You're sleeping in the most uncomfortable settings. And I'll tell you, this is how bad it got. Our team got so sick from the food at the Dream Center. I'm not kidding. All of us opted with great joy for Taco Bell for dinner one night. That's how bad it was. Some of you are going, come on, don't offend Taco Bell. That's my favorite restaurant. Sorry. But Taco Bell was an upgrade. So by the end of the week, we had, one, we had one kind of ministry assignment left. I was exhausted. I wanted to go home. I, Oregon never looked so wonderful to me. I wanted to get out of L.A., honestly. And then the last thing they do is a Sunday morning. They have, I think, about 40 or 50 buses. They send the buses out all over all of the city of Los Angeles to invite people to church. And Dream Center had built such a great reputation that what they did, they sent us, sent our bus particularly, went down, to about five or six of the really low-end motels just south of downtown. And who lives there are people who are barely just off the street because it's a single-room motel room with one bed, and you had families of anywhere from four to six to eight people living in one room. They're on government assistance if they have any money at all. They're, they're basically surviving day by day, and that's what we ended up going down to for a few hours. From hotel to hotel, you go in, literally you go in, they have to unlock the gates inside the lobby to let you in, and then you go door to door, and all the doors are metal, and so I'm not kidding, by the second hotel, all of our fists were sore, because this is what you do, you knock on every door, and you say, hey, Dream Center's here, we're leaving for church in five minutes, meet you downstairs at the bus, and people would come, it was amazing, but we're doing this, and I'm tired, and I want to go home, and, and I'm like, this is how bad, I'm just being honest, I'm like, I don't care. I have compassion fatigue. I've seen enough poverty in the city of L.A. this week. I don't care about people coming to church, but I know I have to do this. Anybody want to admit you've ever felt that? So just keep going, and finally, we get to the last motel. We go through all the floors. People get on the, by the time we had the bus was full, and we're headed back to the Dream Center. 
and one of the last kids to come out of the last hotel, he comes out, and right as he comes out, kids are laughing at him, they're making fun of him, they all know his name's Robert, and Robert is the kid that nobody wants to be friends with, because you could tell Robert had some delay, and because there was some delay, he, he socially was awkward, he couldn't say, he couldn't articulate words very clearly, and because of that, everybody made fun of him, nobody wanted to sit with him, everybody kind of ran from Robert. Well, who do you think Robert sat next to on the bus? Robert sits down, and he's, he, he literally, he, he can't even control his own mouth. He's drooling, and just profusely. His, his shirt, I mean, he's probably 12 years old. His shirt is drenched with his own drool. He smells, and he's sitting next to me, and I'm like, Lord, really? You know how tired I am. You know all the things I've done this week. And so he sits down next to me. So the bus starts going, and Robert had no care in the world. He didn't care that literally we had a three-seat buffer all around us because nobody wanted to be near Robert except I'm sitting next to Robert. The windows are down because it's hot and there's no air conditioning in the bus. And as we're going, the wind's going, and sure enough, all of Robert's slobber and his spit literally just flying into my face. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, Lord, I know I'm supposed to love Robert, but I got nothing. So as we're sitting there, and I'm trying to have a conversation with Robert, I can't understand a word he's saying. People outside the bus are laughing at Robert because he's waving at everybody. I'm like, Lord, give me love for Robert because right now I know I should, but I don't care. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, I started sobbing. And it wasn't Robert's spit hitting my face anymore that was making my face wet. I looked at this boy and I thought, this boy has nobody in the world. And he just happened to get on the bus and he happened to sit next to me. And so I just put my arm around Robert and I hung out with him. And then we went to church and I sat next to Robert. Now, I don't know where, and then we dropped Robert off, and I prayed for him, and I don't know where Robert is today, but in that moment, I had nothing left to offer him, and I prayed and said, God, I have nothing for this boy that you love so desperately. Give me love for him, and I started sobbing, and I don't cry easily. What was that? God finally, it took a week for God to get me to the end of myself and said, you got nothing left because I'm going to show you, you have everything through my power when you get to the end of yours. Put yourself in a circumstance where you're in over your head and watch God's power show up. Then you know what that means? I have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. Why? Because I experience his power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in me that I have access to when I'm in over my head. Second thing, second thing that, that Paul says about what it is to know Christ in verse 10 is the fellowship of his sufferings, the partnership of his sufferings. So he says to share in his sufferings. Now, this one doesn't make sense. First, get yourself in the deep end, then you'll know Jesus. Second thing, share in his sufferings. Doesn't that sound great? What are the sufferings of Jesus? Jesus suffered for doing the right thing. Jesus suffered for dying for the sins of all people for all time. Jesus suffered horrifically in his life. And Paul says, I want to know those kind of sufferings. You're like, what? What are you thinking, Paul? Why? Because in suffering, there is what? Fellowship. What is fellowship? Fellowship is unity. Fellowship is connection. Fellowship is relationship. Fellowship is understanding. When you suffer as somebody else suffers, you know them more. What does that mean? That means you can't fully know Jesus unless you suffer. What? That doesn't fly. Talk to Paul someday. The only way you truly know Jesus is as you suffer as Jesus suffered. Remember in chapter 1, Paul says it's been appointed to you what? To suffer. Suffer. Like, wait, it's not a death wish. It's not wishing suffering, but it's not avoiding suffering. It's not saying that every time you suffer, it's the devil that's making you suffer. 
And even if it is the devil making you suffer, guess what? Jesus will use what the devil's trying to do to destroy you to make you stronger and to make you know him more intimately. Suffering. It's not something that we want to talk about. It's not something we want to engage in. It's not something we want to be a part of. But it's the very thing that brings a bond for us with Jesus. Why do you think when people have common suffering, they come together? Why do people wear pink today, primarily? Because of breast cancer. It's amazing to watch an NBA game and watch professional athletes look as stupid as possible wearing pink shoes. Why is that? Because one of their family members struggled with breast cancer and either died or is a survivor, and because of that, they have a bond with all these other people. Millions of people, what, through their common suffering, seem like you can walk up to somebody wearing pink on a certain day, and even though you don't know their name and you don't know their story, there's something of them that you know. Why? Because you have common suffering. Why do war veterans come together after they get out of the military? Why? Because they all know what it's like to lose a friend in battle. They know what it's like to suffer from PTSD. So they come together. Why? Because there is fellowship in suffering. This is what Jesus, this is what Paul's talking about. I know Jesus more. Why? Because I've experienced his suffering in me. And I'm willing to do that so I might know him more. That means in our life, when you suffer, don't get frustrated, don't get mad, but say, Jesus, what do I not know of you that you are revealing to me in this moment of deep and profound suffering that I couldn't know apart from it? That's what Paul, that's why Paul knew Jesus. And then the, the last thing he says uh, in this concept of knowing him is to embrace his death. He says this, he says, becoming like him in his death. What does it mean to become like Jesus in his death? Are you and I going to die for our own sins? No. Are we going to die for the sins of the world? No. What is becoming like Jesus in his death? Jesus died, but the reason we're still talking about him, the reason we're still trying to know him, is because he's not dead anymore. He died, but to be like him in his death is to experience death and resurrection. So this is what Paul's leading to in the last verse, in verse 11. But to be like him in his death means that Jesus died and then was resurrected, which means there's an element of who we are that must die in order to be resurrected. There's a future resurrection we'll talk about, but the reality of resurrection today is there's resurrection life and power present for us today, but it requires that death comes first. And we don't want to die. What I mean by that is we don't want certain parts of our life to die. We want to hang on to them. Here's the challenge. If you don't let them die, you won't see resurrection. If you want God to redeem something in your life, it has to die first. And we're, we're, I think we're good at like partial surrender. We sing, I'll surrender all, but there's always one or two things like, yeah, but not that, right? We're going to hang on to that thing because, God, I don't think you can handle that one. And I think I like it the way it is, even though it's the very thing that's destroying your life. But what does that look like when you actually, when we surrender all to God, we give him everything, that those things die in us so that we can be made brand new. What does a resurrected reality look like when we let things die in our life? Here's a perfect example. Zacchaeus. I am so frustrated that Zacchaeus is known for his stature. He was short. That's what, it's like, we always make sure when we do the Sunday school lesson, he's the short guy, Right? His story has nothing to do with his stature. He couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed a tree. We get all that. But the power of Zacchaeus' story is not in climbing a tree. The power is what happened in a conversation he had with Jesus that we have no record of. We just have evidence of it. So you know the story, Jesus sees him and he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. We don't know what happened in, in that, that moment in, in Zacchaeus' house, but here's who Zacchaeus used to be. He's a tax collector. He's greedy. 
His life is about robbing from his own people to pad his bank account. That's what his life was about. You would say he was addicted to wealth. His God was not God. His God was money. So when he encounters Jesus, what happens to the way he views money? What happens to his addiction? We know on the, on the backside because you know what he says? He says, I now, because he goes beyond what the law requires, because now he sees that he's been robbing from his own people. The law required that you paid back twice the amount that you stole from somebody. But he says, I now pay back four times what I stole from people. And then what else did he do? What? He, s- he gave his money to the poor. Wait a second. This is one of the most wealth- wealthiest guys in the culture. And he meets Jesus, and what happens is his idea of money dies. And what's resurrected is his idea of money in the kingdom of God. It went from greed to generosity. See, there are things in our life that we have yet to see redeemed because we're still hanging on to them. They're still alive, but they're not well. We're hanging on to stuff, and God wants to redeem that, and he wants to transform that, he wants to resurrect it, but you and I are too busy hanging on to it. And he's saying it's time for that to die. It's time for you to move forward. It's time for you to see something resurrect in your life. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 16, he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and do what? Follow me. Deny myself my agenda, my rights. And then here's the final thing I'm going to close with, and Danny's going to join us for a a time of response as we come to a conclusion. Verse 11, following Jesus. So Paul identifies in verse 10, this is what it means to know Jesus, but then following Jesus means moving beyond death to life. So verse 11, he finishes with this. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want you to capture what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, here's the end game. Here's the ultimate goal. This is where it's all going, is that somehow I might experience the fullness of resurrection to be brought back to life in a resurrected body just as Jesus was resurrected. But what he's talking about is a future event. It's the goal of his faith. It's the goal of knowing Jesus. And what is it? Is it so that, is, is Paul's focus just to go to heaven? No, no, no. You need to understand what Paul's talking about. If this whole thing is about knowing Jesus, then Paul's eternity is about knowing Jesus more. What am I saying? What's the end game? What Paul understood is what we sometimes forget. What is heaven about? See, we have this idea, oh yeah, we're just going to escape this world, and we're going to go to heaven, and we're going to be with Jesus, but what is heaven? We talk about, oh, what is wealth in heaven going to look like? What are the pearly gates? What's the city going to look like? Forget about all that. We're going to get Jesus. We're going to get Jesus face to face. We're going to get what Adam and Eve had with God. What they lost in their sin, what we've lost in our sin. Paul says, I want to experience the resurrection from the dead. Why? Because in my resurrected state, I will be face to face with the God of the universe forever. And nothing, nothing can be better than that. That's his goal, that he'll throw away all of his religious experience, all of his personal accomplishments. Why? If I can just somehow get a shot at seeing Jesus face to face forever. That's how important it was to him. Why is that significant? Just think about this. This is the goal. This is not to check out on this life, but this is why we want to know Jesus. Why? Because that means that someday, so this is a quick little break here, theological correction, okay? I've done and been a part of so many memorial services where people say, oh yeah, my my brother or or so-and-so, they're going to be with heaven and they're dancing before the Lord. No, not right now, they're not. Sorry to burst your bubble. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
the resurrection happens in the future. The resurrection is when our spirit and our body are reunited and our bodies are resurrected to be like Jesus' body when he was resurrected, which means you can eat great food, but you can walk through walls. And you can be in one place and show up in another place. You can do all these kinds of things. But when that happens, I'll guarantee we will be dancing. But that's the future reality that Paul's talking about, the resurrection from the dead. That's why he says when Jesus returns, what the dead will be raised first, and then the rest of us, and then what will we experience? Resurrection. That's the goal. What is the goal of resurrection? Have a really cool body? That's a nice byproduct. What's the goal of resurrection? Face-to-face reality with Jesus forever. That's what Paul's talking about. Danny, would you, would you come join me? So as we conclude, this is what I, I want us to focus in on today, because I think Hear me, I speak, f- this, is a, this message is as much for me as it is for anybody in the room because I have a history of accomplishment. I have a history of a religious heritage. But never do I want any of that to be something that I claim as enough or sufficient to truly know Jesus. And that means there has to be a, a point of surrender ongoingly. There has to be a reset in our faith periodically. We can't just rest on what used to be. This is not about earning salvation. This is about knowing Jesus. And Jesus is moving forward, and we're called to follow him. So he's calling us to what? Once again, surrender to him so that we might know him deeper. So take a look at these, these lyrics. We're going to sing this song again. This is a song we sang earlier. It's, it literally is a brand new song. It came out a week and a half ago. Okay. This is the prayer that we have today. All I want is to live within your love, to be undone by who you are. My desire is to know you deeper. Lord, I will open up again, throw my fears into the wind. I'm desperate for a touch of heaven. In a moment, we're going to sing that song, but I want you to, to understand something so important. Why was Paul so transformed? because he somehow read some argument against Judaism and for Christianity? No. Was it because he studied really hard and finally got the right theology? No. It's because on his way to persecute Christians, Jesus intercepted him and appeared to him and gave him a vision that transformed Paul's life. He had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And now his life has changed. What did Paul have? He had a touch of heaven in the form of Jesus. What do you and I need? A touch of heaven encounter with Jesus. So I'm going to pray in a moment. We're going to sing. But this is what I, I think is appropriate. Listen, I, I, this is not to guilt anybody or to somehow make you feel like you have to respond, but I'm convinced this morning there are some of us in this room today that your response in the next few moments has to be more than just your brain or an emotion you feel in your heart. There has to be a physical response. It's a part of pushing you forward to say, you know, I'm going to do something uncomfortable here because I am going to make a point of surrender in my life that I give it all just to the fact that I want to know Jesus more. So when we go into this song, the front is open. In fact, there are tears from the people in first service on this carpet. That's why there's tissues up here. People coming forward saying, listen, I, I want to know Jesus more. I'm willing to surrender all of my spiritual heritage and everything from the past, and I want to give it all to Jesus so I might get a shot and knowing him deeper today. If that's you, then come forward. If you can't physically come forward, get on your knees where you are. Sit in your seat. Find a posture that's appropriate, but don't miss the opportunity to surrender everything to Jesus today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you gave all for us, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead, and much of what Paul is saying today, Lord, we need to hear. 
that we would let go of everything. We consider everything a loss for the opportunity to experience your power, to walk in your sufferings, to be like you in your death so that somehow we actually might know you more, that you might take the box that we've created of your of knowledge of you and through your, our experience with you, you would blow that box apart and there would be a deeper level of intimacy that all of us would experience in you today, Jesus. So would you come by your spirit in each one of us as we respond to you.